We're in a series in First Thessalonians, um, and, and, and we're in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, uh, title of the series, Dissonant Disciples, um, and th- this particular uh, message, our subtitle is Love as God's Family. So let's read from Psalm 119, verses 72 and 73, aloud as a prayer together. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. Amen. Amen. Well, our, our text, as I said, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Let's read them together now about your love for one another or your love as, God, as a family. We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will, be, uh, you will not be dependent on anybody. Now I'm going to play a little game with you. It's one you might be familiar with. Name that tune, but I'm not going to play any notes. I'm, I'm simply going to read some lyrics, and they're not the first verse or the first word, so you're going to have to be fairly in the know. Now, if you read my email last night, you're not allowed to answer, Okay. <laughs> Or if you read it this morning that I sent last night, just in case some of you are trying to be technical on me. Um, so anyone else, just shout out the answer when you think you know who the, the name of the tune and possibly, and even better, the artist uh, for the tune. Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? A nation turns its lonely eyes to you. Okay, that's the, that's the tune, right? Mrs. Robinson, who, who, who performed that? Who? Simon and Garfunkel, uh, off of one of the best albums ever. But anyway, just saying, ju- just, just saying. Um, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? A nation turns its lonely eyes to you. What's that you say, Mrs. Robinson? Jolton Joe has left and gone away. In a, in a 60 Minutes interview, a few, many years later actually, Simon, Paul Simon, the one who wrote the song, uh, mentioned that, Sometime after the song was released, he received a letter from Joe DiMaggio in which DiMaggio expressed his confusion at what in the world that song could mean. DiMaggio wrote, what, what do you mean, where have I gone? I haven't gone anywhere. I'm, I'm still around. I'm selling Mr. Coffee machines. <laughs> he was doing commercials for Mr. Coffee at the time. And Paul Simon then smiled at Mike Wallace, the host of 60 Minutes, and remarked, uh, Obviously, Mr. DiMaggio is not accustomed to thinking of himself as a metaphor. He's not accustomed to thinking of himself as a metaphor. DiMaggio didn't realize that he had come to represent something bigger than himself. He was married to Marilyn Monroe. It was the perfect marriage, and yet everything broke apart and fell apart, and the nation's left wondering what in the world is really going on. 
where are our dreams, where are our hopes? He had become so much to become to represent something so much more than just himself. And and to really get the message of First Thessalonians, whether we're talking just our text or the whole letter, I think it applies to the whole letter and certainly to our text. You you may have to get used to thinking of yourself as a metaphor, so to speak. Paul writes to the Thessalonians as if they're something more significant than meets the eyes. If we want to understand what Paul is saying, we have to begin to understand who they were and hence who we are. Because who they were, by the way, we are. We've got to grasp the significance of who they were. Who we are. And, and that, that we are and they were much more than meets the eye. You've become part of something so much bigger than yourself. Now when I say metaphor, I'm, I'm using it in the sense that, that I simply mean you represent something much bigger than you and your life. You, you've become, what you've become is more than you. It's bigger than you when you come into Christ Jesus. When you're in Christ, what you've become is vastly bigger than just you and your life. Our text on the surface level might appear to be so mundane that you might wonder that it, why it even deserves a, a sermon. But despite its humdrum appearance, the text is worth unpacking so that we too might increase in love for one another. It's, it, it's kind of like we, we, we celebrated the Lord's table this morning. I, I just, as Pete uh, read the words from... The Lord's Supper, they just struck me. Jesus took bread. He took the most mundane thing in the room. The most common thing in the room. The most, every day, I mean, you eat it and it comes out, okay? It's just bread. And he took something that seemed so mundane and he transformed it into something that's unbelievably huge. This is my body given for you. And that's what he does with our lives. He takes our lives and he transforms them into something so much bigger than us. If you leave here today thinking that Jesus commands us to to love one another, so in order to be a better Christian... I, I need to really work at loving more. You missed the point. Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians about what they are to do because of whom they have become. And therefore, in order for us to understand what we are to do, we have to understand whom we have become. Far too often we think we're selling Mr. Coffee Machines and we don't get it. That's not what we're doing. You can fill in the blank with whatever you think. You know, I'm selling this, I'm selling that's what I do. I'm, I'm peddling medicines as a pharmacist, or I'm fixing people up with this, I'm doing that. But, but we, what we're doing is bigger than all of that. Today, we, we, as we look at this text, we're going to see that love has to be worked out in the, the practical details of our daily lives because we are part of a new community in which walking out love is the proof, the validation of who we actually are. 
So we're going to look at this text under three headings. Um, just headings that describe what Paul is saying. The first heading, who you are determines what you must do. Who you are determines what you must do. The second, why, why you do love as God's family. And then finally, how you are to love even more. Why you do love as God's family and how you are to love even more. So first, who you are determines what you must do. Who you are determines what you must do. Read with me uh, verses 9 and 10 again. We're going to just read the first part of verse 9. But now about your love for one another. And, 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 and the, probably the best way to translate that, and very literally you translate it now concerning brotherly love, but it didn't just mean like some sort of male camaraderie. Uh, you know, it's like, wow, this is like macho love. No, it's, it's family. It's the love of being a family. Sibling love. It would have included brothers and sisters in their context. They would have understood that. So concerning family love, we do not need to write to you. And then in verse 10, and in fact, you do love all God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Note how many times their status as a family is brought up. In just two verses. This... Love is a family, this brotherly love, this sibling love. Uh, you do love all God's family, and yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. So, Paul is emphasizing something here. And, and, and we might be so used to just hearing that, oh yeah, the church is God's family, that we just we pass that over without really thinking about the depth of what that means. And it meant something to them. It was a big deal to them. So we need to pause and consider what that means. And this language of love as a family that we read in our verses today is actually rooted in the prayer that Paul prayed at the end of chapter 3. There in verses 11 through 13 we read, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other. See, he's praying about that love right there. Um, and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy. Now, that's, that was the subject of what just preceded this section that we looked at three weeks ago in the previous section. But he's praying about the things that he was then going to teach about in the presence of our what? God and Father, when our Lord Jesus uh, comes with all his holy ones. So notice that, that that prayer begins with God our Father and ends with God our Father. The whole idea is that everything in between has to do with how we live as his children, as his family, as brothers and sisters in that family. The call to love one another as brothers and sisters grows out of the recognition of our common Father. When, when Jesus taught us to pray, what's the very first thing he taught us to say? Our Father. So the very first words that we are to pray tie us to one another. It's not my Father. It's our Father. Our. Which means we are a family and we pray as a family. We come to the Lord together. 1 Thessalonians, our text, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, it assumes the truth that the Thessalonians have become part of a unique family. A unique family. And, and the unique family is, we, we could label it God's end time people. 
these people that had been prophesied by the prophets in the Old Testament that one day there would be this kingdom of people that would transform the world. And the language Paul used, as we saw it in the last text, and we're going to see, we see it here in this family language, and we'll see it again in a minute somewhere else, this language keeps pointing to the fact that, oh, by the way, that's who you are. You are that end-time people that will transform the world and will, will last forever. That's who you are. Oh, and by the way, because that's who you are, you need to increase in love more and more. Who you are determines what you must do. These are the people who, according to Daniel the prophet in chapter 7 of Daniel's vision, uh, are to possess the kingdom, which will never be destroyed. The kingdom that will conquer every kingdom. The kingdom that, that, that Jesus, when you get fast forward to Jesus, he said it's like a mustard seed, which planted in the ground becomes eventually what? It's the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes greater than all the garden plants. It becomes a tree. Yet, it's a mustard tree. A still rather humble tree, to be honest with you. He didn't say it becomes one of the cedars of Lebanon, which in their world would be like saying, a sequoia. They know what a sequoia was, or they probably said that. But but that's what the kingdoms of this world were compared to. The cedars of Lebanon. Assyria was like the cedars of Lebanon. Glorious, magnificent, huge, powerful. And Jesus transforms that and says, you're like a mustard seed. You're, you're going to become great. You're going to be like a mustard tree. Well, it's big and rather humble. He intentionally picked up on an Old Testament idea of a seed that becomes something small, becoming a sprout, becoming a cedar of Lebanon and trans, you know, taking over the world. But, but, but he's using that to say, yes, but so radically different. So radically different. Christians, listen, church, we have to stop relying on the methods of the, this world's power to possess the kingdom and fulfill our destiny. Money and success and all the trappings of worldly empowerment are not the means of growing the kingdom. The sacrificial love of the cross is. When the church realizes who we really are, we will stop trying to conform to the world in order to be relevant. There are a lot of books, a lot of seminars you can go to to teach the church how to be relevant to the world. Um, excuse me, if we understand our, who we are, we would understand that we are the kingdom that will never pass away and the world and its desires are passing away. We are, by definition, relevant. And if they want to become relevant, they need to learn from us. We are, by definition, relevant. We don't have to become relevant. We need to recognize why we are, and, and focus in on that. Instead, we're trying to become cedars of Lebanon and look like cedars of Lebanon, which is really quite a joke because we'll never do that because that's not what we were made to be and do. Be like your 
you know, my son was young coming into the room wearing my shoes, which was a common experience, you know, he, uh, mostly because he loves shoes. But anyway, he, he, he would come into the room, you get these boats on, right? And he's just kind of flopping around in them. And, and that's what we try to do when we try to take on the ways of the world to win people to the kingdom. It doesn't work. And if, if it does, you have to then question, what are we winning them to? And then you have to really wonder, are they actually winning us to something and not the other way around? Our, our, our short text is in effect saying what you are a part of is far more important than the part you play. What you are a part of is the biggest thing in the history of the world. Therefore, what you are a part of demands something from you for the sake of the king. What you are a part of demands something from you for the sake of the king. And Paul is saying all of this, interestingly enough, to a local church. He isn't saying it to a generic idea of the church universal. He's saying it to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, according to chapter 1, verse 1. Which means that if we too have given our allegiance to Jesus, then we, Gulf Coast Community Church at 555-76 Avenue North, well, not really, that's where we gather, but that people that gathers there... And as that body, that, that we too are much greater than any one among us is by ourselves. In fact, so much greater that we were spoken about in the prophets. We are the fulfillment of prophecy. The, the truth is we all need a better story. It, it's, it's like the child... You know, the parent comes in, the child's clearly done something wrong. And and anyone who's had children over the age of maybe five, at least four even, you've come to realize, you've experienced this. They've done something wrong, you you come in, you see that something's wrong. What happened? And what follows can frequently be uh, some really uh, amazing uh, demonstration of creativity and imagination. <laughs> I'm not my children, of course, but I've met people whose children. <clears throat> and and you, 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 you're sitting there, you're not sure whether to laugh or cry or beat the tar out of them or just fall down laughing, just give it up. You know, this, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's like, seriously... But see, that they realize that that moment when they're caught is like, okay, like I know what happened. And they somehow, sometimes they try to actually intersect truth with their story. Sometimes they just give up the truth altogether. But usually they try to intersect some truth in so it's a little more credible. But, but, but they, they realize that the reality here is not a very good story. I need a better story. So they start coming up with creatively and imagining the better story and relaying it to you. Maybe you come from a family background that is broken, fractured, destroyed by sin. Maybe you yourself have a history that, is, that, that demonstrates the, the weakness of your soul and the bad decisions of your life. And you want a different story. You, in fact, need a different story. The truth is we all need a better story. 
And in Jesus Christ, we have a better story. And the interesting thing about it is, it does not deny the actual story of our lives. It redeems the actual story of our lives. It doesn't say, oh no, that didn't happen to you. It says, actually it did. But now look what God is doing. Who you are determines what you must do. Because who you are puts you in the middle of another story. What God is doing in the world. Maybe you've never thought you could live up to the kind of life that Christ calls us to, but you didn't realize that you were, that you were a metaphor, that you are much bigger than your individual life because together we are the fulfillment of prophecy. We are the restored children of God. Now let's look at our second heading, why, why the Thessalonians were already loving God as family, why, why you do love as God's family. Look at verse 9 and 10 with me again. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Uh, we do not need to write to you. This is a bit like the parents sending their child to stay the night at a friend's house for the first time. Uh, and, and, and as they're about to go, say, well, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that you need to behave yourself. Right. They just did. (laughs) Tell them. In fact, Paul has been praying day and night, as we read a moment ago, that he might come and supply what they were lacking in chapter 3, and then he prayed that their love would increase. And so now he's saying, I don't need to tell you that about your love for one another. Well, Paul fully intends to write about this and tell them about their love for one another, but at the same time, he's wanting to acknowledge that he is fully aware of the progress they have already made. They've made significant progress, and he doesn't want to miss that, and he doesn't want that to be missed on them. So it might be more like the parent who says, you make me so proud because of how respectful you are to others, even when I am not around. So I have no worries with you going over to the Smith's house for the night. I know how you are. Doing both at the same time. It's interesting. If you were were to guess what one thing that Paul highlights or mentions in every one of his letters, what do you think it might be? We associate Paul with a number of things. and We call John the apostle of love, and rightly so, I think. But Paul mentions... And appeals to the church in some fashion to love one another in every one of his letters. There's something else that shows up in every single one of his letters, except one, the short letter to Philemon. <laughs> it's, you know, it's short letter, it's easy to miss some. <clears throat> but every one of his other letters, he talks about we should live our lives in order to please God. Now, that's another emphasis. We, that one we really don't often think of as something that Paul would... would You know, living to make God happy, as we talked about in that last text. Paul brings that up in every letter but one. The the two are related. Why were they how they were? Why were they already loving one another? You yourselves, he says, says, have been taught by God. In the end of verse 9. For you yourselves have been taught by God. 
What doesn't Paul mean? I want to start with what he doesn't mean by that, and then we'll go to what he does mean by that. What he doesn't mean by that. What Paul doesn't mean. It, it doesn't mean that, that Christians don't need leaders, pastors, or teachers. That is far from what Paul intends to communicate here. Far. That's more of an American way of interpreting it because we're very individualistic. It's not at all what they would have heard nor what he would have been communicating. Just, for instance, consider these two things from the letter to the Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it as not as a human word but as it actually is, the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. So you have been taught by God, included them hearing the word from Paul and Silas as the word of God which was teaching them and is now at work in them. (coughs) Likewise, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the beginning of this larger section, uh, Paul says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. There's that idea again. You're already doing this. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do so more and more. Notice the same pattern there that he's now in the verses we're in doing the same thing. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So, again, Paul was giving them instructions. Silas was giving them instructions. They were receiving these things by the authority of the Lord. So they were taught by God, but not without any intermediaries at any time. But you yourselves are taught by God. So let's ask then, because that's not what, it, you know, we, he doesn't mean that we don't need other people in our lives, but what does he mean? Well, the, the family language we looked at a bit ago, and the, the language of the previous verses that we looked at three weeks ago, about God having filled them with his Holy Spirit. And now this language of being, quote, taught by God, are all taken from Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so forth, who spoke about the day of the Messiah's coming kingdom. And when you take them all together in such a brief context as Paul is using them here, they combine to say that the Thessalonians, and by the way, and you, Gulf Coast Community Church, are now the people in and through whom in and through whom the fulfillment of the promises of the kingdom will happen. They'll happen in you and they'll happen through you. Taught by God is a reference to, and and, and I'm going to read the verses from which they come out of Isaiah, so follow along because the the phrase is going to come at the end of these verses, but you need to understand what comes before it to grasp what it is. So follow me until we get to the end. Verse uh, Isaiah 54, beginning in verse 11. Afflicted city. That's your old story. Lashed by storms and not comforted. I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapsus lazuli. That's most translations, sapphires. But um, anyway, I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. And then note the line. All your children will be taught by the Lord. God is our Father, we are brothers and sisters, all your children will be taught by the Lord, you yourselves are taught by God. Same language is being used here. And great will be their peace. Now there are a couple other verses that say similar things. This is the closest in in terms of its parallel, but there are several verses that the the people of that time would have understood these all kind of relating together. But but here you see that that when he says you yourselves have been taught by God, what he's communicating is he's, he's saying, hey, you... Thessalonians, you, you had a story of being afflicted. You had a story of, of, of being lashed by storms and not comforted. 
But now you are the children of God, the city of God that is built gloriously with all these precious jewels. That's who you are now. Which is why they love one another. Because who they are is now reflecting itself out into their lives one to another. You do love all God's family throughout Macedonia. Paul is most likely referring to the economic aid. In other words, the sending of money or food or supplies or help uh, that they needed. To, to, that the Thessalonians were providing to needy Christians within their region. I mean, when you see Macedonia, Thessalon- the Thessalonians are helping all God's family in Macedonia. Think of it this way. It would be like saying, Gulf Coast Community Church, you're helping all God's family in central West Florida. Okay? It's, a, it's a region in which they were a part of. So you're helping the family over in Lakeland. You're helping the family up here in Newport Ritchie and down here in, in, in Bradenton. And you know, God's family in those places, those churches there where there's a lot of hunger, you're sending aid. And remember, we know from earlier in the letter that the, the Philippians, who are even poorer than the Thessalonians, were sending aid to Paul so that he could preach the gospel to them. Evidently, they're now sending food back to the Philippians. Money for food, however they got it there. Elsewhere, Paul speaks of the extreme poverty endured by the churches of Macedonia. The the Thessalonians had demonstrated love to all the brothers and sisters in the whole of Macedonia. Most of the Macedonian believers needed food and clothing. Those in Thessalonica are very likely to have been slightly better off because they were in the, the capital of the province. And a significant trade board. Now, when I say slightly better off, I don't mean they were wealthy. Uh, They had no problems. They had problems of poverty of their own. But they were better off because they lived in a context that there was more economic opportunity, more job, you know, more in the way of jobs, more in the way of trade, more opportunity to to do things. Much more. And, and, And so, they, even in their poverty, recognize that, hey, we need to help these that are in more poverty, so we're going to send from our own need and help them. Philippians, I, I want to be like Macedonian believers because the Philippians had a habit of doing that too, and they were even poorer than the Thessalonians. We read about that in Corinthians, but these, these Macedonians who were not, the believers in those areas were not rich, and yet they, to their hurt, were serving one another, and that's what Paul is commending here. The Thessalonians were very generous. In addition to supporting the work of God in their own church and even feeding the poor among them, they were sending aid in some fashion to the believers in other areas. Now, Gulf Coast Community Church. I mean, I could, I could spend the next 20 minutes talking about the ways that you demonstrate love for one another. I could talk about benevolence needs that are met by super, just amazing generosity. I could talk about how even yesterday I heard reports last night about how many different people, like names kept coming of people that, that showed up to assist somebody and, 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 and just giving grace to them in a time of need and helping them through something and, and joyfully doing so. My mind's blown by the, the grace and generosity you do love. You've been taught by God to do this. But then Paul turns his attention to, the, to this, how you are to love even more. And it's interesting because this has been on his heart. We, knew, we see that from the prayer earlier. It's been on his heart for a bit. And so 
verses 10, the middle of verse 10 and, and, and through the end of our text, let's read. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your own hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Paul had said he had no need to write to them about this. Um, but it, now it's as if he says, yeah, but I will anyway. <laughs> I, I know I don't need to write to you about this. You, you, oh, but I'm going to write to you about it anyway. So here I go. And we need to recognize, to really discern what Paul is doing, we have to recognize that, that Paul views them and he's speaking to them as a unified whole. Some may have been doing just fine and all that they needed to do. And others weren't doing anything that they needed to do. But Paul, Paul always speaks to the church. You may, it's fascinating. We, we, I've talked about this a couple of times, and Todd even did a message on it a while back. But Philemon, um, Paul writes to Philemon, but he sends the letter to the church in, that meets in his house and to a couple of other brothers and sisters. And so this letter's being read to everybody, but the whole letter's a request for Philemon to do a particular thing. Why? Because Paul's view was that how one of us acts is how all of us acts, and how all of us are to act is how each one of us must act. He, he views this as a whole. Why? Because actually we are our brother's keeper, which by the way includes sisters, just in case you're wondering. We are. And so Paul commends all for what they were doing. Now he pushes on all for what they need to start doing more and more. Because there's this mutuality. It gets back to the fact that we're part of something that is so much bigger than just ourselves. The Thessalonians may, may have been tempted to ask, when is enough enough, Paul? I mean, you just told us, what we're saying today, like we're, we're supporting those in our church and and we're helping out those that are preaching the gospel to us here. And, and we're sending aid to all those in the rest of our region. When is enough enough? Well, what do you want us to do? Well, let's look at how, how does Paul want them to increase in love? Paul is saying, in effect, now the king commands us to love his family, and that love his family needs to start looking this way. He's going to get particular about the way in which it needs to look. Love, listen, love has to be worked out in the practical details of our daily lives. Love has to be worked out in the practical details of our daily lives. To say that, oh, love one another as family does not mean have some sort of feeling toward one another as family. It's great if you have that feeling. But for those that are married, that you know that there are days you feel wonderfully in love with your wife or your husband, and uh, there are days you don't feel particularly wonderfully in love. And oh, by the way, you're still called to love them. It doesn't fluctuate with your feelings. Thank God. Amen? It's about actions. And so Paul said it needs to look this way. Love has to be worked out in the practical details of our daily lives. And so he's going to tell them what it looks like. It's a, it's a bit like what we read in Leviticus 19. Now, you, you are familiar with something from Leviticus 19. Everybody in the room is familiar with something from Leviticus 19. You just might not know where it is. 
Jesus quoted it, and it's one of the most commonly quoted things of Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. It comes from Leviticus 19. But what's interesting is when you go look at it in Leviticus 19, it comes at the end of a long list of details of how to work out love one with another. And the concluding point is love your neighbor as yourself. So if you want to know what love your neighbor as yourself looked like to an Israelite living at the time that Leviticus was written, and most of it won't make any sense to us per se, but the principles make sense. And so in, in, in Leviticus 19, start, if you start in verse 9 and 10, he, he says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and foreigner. Well, yeah, yeah, what is that? We don't reap and harvest fields. Okay, let me, let me help you out. Your paycheck isn't just for you. It's just not, it's not just for you. As Americans, that's just like absurd. But I'm, this is God's kingdom and how it works. Do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. It's pretty straightforward. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. So, in, in, in a court situation, do not cave to the pressure of the people in power to lie in order to, to keep them in power and to keep them out of trouble for the things they're doing to oppress others. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. To the person that's working for you, that's really poor, don't tell them, oh, you come tomorrow, I'll pay you. No, they, they need to eat tonight. Pay them. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I love how practical that is. I mean, it just sounds like one of those stupid, idiotic stunts that somebody might think to do, and they never stop to think they're mocking God in the process. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Justice, by the way, still matters big time to God. Justice is a big deal to God. Has been always. Will never stop being a big deal to him. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. The liability issues involved there. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. That's interesting. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you're not sharing the guilt. You know, on the one hand, Jesus teaches us when somebody strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek, right? You, you, you turn, you're willing to take harm even when you have the power not to take that harm. You, you're willing to do it. So we're not going to strike you back. But, but then on the other hand, rebuke your neighbor frankly. If your brother sins, go to him. You, you can't have peace unless you have confrontation. You can't have peace unless you have confrontation. It's not possible. And then notice how it ends. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, that's kind of the summary line for all of the above. Love has to be worked out in the practical details of our lives. Well, there are three descriptions here in Thessalonians that Paul gives for how they are to increase in love for one another. They're not three distinct things that they need to do. They're three ways of looking at this one change from 
that needs to take place in their lives. There's these different angles, if you will, at looking at this one change that needs to take place in their church life. What are they? Simply, make it your ambition. This is in verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your own hands. Now, the bigger question is, what did Paul mean by that? Well, the short answer, the short answer is, we don't know exactly what he meant by that. But that's okay. Because just like that text in Leviticus, where we do know what he meant, they, they meant, it doesn't directly apply well, it indirectly applies. Well, here we can apply the principles and get what he's, what he's driving at. Now, there are most likely what he meant, and so that's, that's what I'm going to talk about, most likely. In, in Thessalonian culture, many were ambitious of moving up the political and economic circles of their city. That, that, that meant security and stability. They, the, like, like, they wanted prosperity. They wanted to be amongst the movers and shakers of their society, to, to, to move up the social economic ladder, which was difficult to do. And it's probably hard for any of us to relate to as Americans because that never crosses our mind. Or maybe it does. I don't. Anyway, it's into that context that Paul says to strive for, to be ambitious, yes, but for the opposite of what most people are ambitious for, to be ambitious for a quiet life. It's like in another place, Paul says, therefore we make it our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. Worldly ambitions and kingdom ambitions are very different. Don't be deceived. The cross defines kingdom ambitions. The cross defines kingdom ambitions. Others uh, wrote at the same time that Paul was writing to them in that same era. Um, They contrasted the quiet life with the vulgar man. So there's a quiet life, and then there's, on the other hand, the vulgar man who spends his day meddling, running around in public in theaters, tribunals, councils, and assemblies, meetings and consultations of all sorts, going about without moderation. He pricks up his ears in an excess of bustling busyness. And we could all do a little, take a little dose of leading lives that aren't quite so filled with everything under the sun except the business of the kingdom of God. It's hard to love our neighbor when our lives are filled with agendas other than the king's business. And to mind your own business in God's family is to mind the king's business. The the quiet life might be a a life which is not spent arguing constantly on Facebook for our political positions as if earthly government could bring utopia. Well, there's a place for speaking truth. There is a place for speaking truth. There is no place in the life of the Christian for argumentative wrangling. We need to avoid that. Why is this helpful? Why is it helpful to the Thessalonians? Why would it be helpful for us? Well, Paul gives two reasons for how this is helpful. This is where we want to zoom in and close here. Two reasons for why this is helpful. One, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. How we live should win the respect of outsiders, even those who don't believe. Peter writes in his letter, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. There's something we've gotten backward in the contemporary church. Paul focused on how we live in order to draw outsiders to listen so that they might hear the hard message of Jesus. 
The tendency of our day is to change the message in order to make it more palatable to win outsiders. That's a very dangerous orientation. When the church learns to be the church, working to give those in need, loving uh, to those in need, loving their neighbors as ourselves, we will gain an audience before a watching world. They may still hate what we say, and that's okay. Jesus never promised that they'd like us, so they'd be persecuted. Far too often, the church, and by the way, that's us, the church. Far too often, the church in, in, in America thinks that Prosperity and fame will win us the respect of the outside world. But in the end, it always ends up making a mockery of the church and ultimately of God. It will seem successful for a while, but eventually we should ask, what are we winning them to? Who is winning whom? Second reason why this is helpful. So that you'll not be dependent on anybody. I think this helps us understand what the issue was that Paul was driving at in their need to increase in love. Based on the rest of First and Second Thessalonians, some were taking advantage of the generosity of the church. The, the challenge to generosity is always going to be that some will always see it as okay to just be on the receiving end. That should never be the mindset of a believer. Everyone must practice sacrificial love. And for these that weren't working hard, it meant you need to start working hard. Everyone must practice sacrifice. Jesus came. Hey, I'm coming preaching good news to the poor. The, 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 the day of the, the release from debt has come. The, the Sabbath has come in me. Oh, and then he said, oh, by the way, all of you that just got released, you have to forgive one another. You have to release everyone else from their debts. What? I thought this was good news for me, not them. What? What are you talking about? But it's good news for them through you too. We all have to get involved in this. The purpose of your work is love of neighbor. That's the purpose of your work because you're part of something so much bigger than you. The church should be independent in its care for its members. And the only way we're going to get there is when it grows out of a Christian work ethic that understands the purpose of our work properly. Gulf Coast Community Church, you have to get used to thinking of yourself as a metaphor, so to speak, as representing something so much bigger than you, than us. What you're a part of is more important than the part you play. What we are a part of is more important than the part we play. Your suffering is about much more than yourself. Your marriage is about much more than yourself. Your family is about much more than your family. If you think your job is about getting rich, you're not loving your neighbor. If you think your church attendance is about us, we're not loving our neighbor. If we think that our marriage or our family is about our own happiness and not something bigger than ourselves, we are not loving our neighbor. What Paul is telling the Thessalonian believers is, don't live your life as if it's all about you because it's not. We're responsible not just for our own actions, but we're responsible for one another's. We are are our brother's and sister's keeper. Love has to be worked out in the practical details of our daily lives because our lives are not our own. Love has to be worked out in the practical details of our daily lives because we are a part of a new community in which walking out love is the proof. It's the very validation of, of who we are. 
Maybe someone would ask, why should I become part of God's family? Well, a lot of ways I could answer that, but I'll tell you one big reason. That's the family that will never pass away. It's the only family that will never pass away. And it's the family in which God is redeeming the brokenness of this world and transforming it into something glorious. And we get it. We all came out of the same broken world that you've been a part of. It's still a half mess, hopefully getting toward half glorious sort of operation. But we're going somewhere. And we have God's promise that will get us there. And Christ invites you to come into that family to receive forgiveness of sins through his own death. This is what's unique about this kingdom, this family. It's the one at the top laid down his life for you. And that transforms how we view everything in this kingdom. So I invite you to consider that you do, in fact, need a better story. And that Christ will give you a better story without ignoring the history of your own story, but redeeming it. Let's pray. Father, help us to catch a glimpse, each of us to catch a glimpse of who we are. More specifically, who you've made us to be as a people. And the reality that even, not just us individuals, but we as a local church that meets at 555-76 Avenue North are part of something so much bigger than that. And that therefore how we live matters. In Jesus' name, amen.